Okay, let's go ahead and turn in our Bibles to um, familiar territory for the brothers from yesterday. We are going to get back to 1 Kings, and I was excited to do that, but the Lord also excited me to move into the Gospel of Mark, and this is what you would call a redundant teaching, probably with amendments to it. So Mark, and you'll be in chapter 11 with me. If you'll turn there, that'll be great. Interestingly enough, I, I sent my bulletin that had some notes on it to somebody, and I don't, I think that maybe Terry and I have been doing swapping, I don't know. But the title on this for today that I think is meaningful and has implications to it is, as a man goes, so a nation. As a man goes, so a nation. Let's go ahead and pray and see how we can track with scriptures today, find ourselves encouraged in the word, have it make a relevant impression on us. And Lord, we ask and thank you for the Holy Spirit and the word of truth, practical experiences that we live through, things that we see that we can certainly line up both scripturally and we can line up as well in terms of what you have shown us with these eyes that you have made sharp, ears that we do have hearing. And so we want to just commit this time to you, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Where I'm going to pick it up right now, and I'll give you just a little bit of a paraphrase, this would be the final week of the Lord's ministry on earth. So if you think you have tensions in your life right now, you imagine yourself as the one who by the heart of God, whom obviously he is God, but in pleasing the Father, satisfying the call of the ages to rectify the condition and the consequence of sin by becoming the offering from God, he in himself, the Lamb of God. And to do so with the certainty that in his position as the great high priest, which he is, every man, woman, and child could be forgiven of their sins and thereby the consequence of sin, which is death. What he would be going through right now in the culmination of over three years of ministry would have oppressed, depressed any one of us not only exhaustively, but very likely to the point of apostasy, just turning back from God. Who can take it? Who can handle it? Well, he took it. He handled it. He was ministering to his 12 disciples who didn't fully get him in the manner by which seemingly, how could you miss him? You're with Jesus Every waking moment, with exception of the times that he pulled away to find himself in prayer, how could you not get him? How could you not have heard what he said? 
why is it that at times he would challenge you in the understanding of faith and of belief? Well, I suppose on that we might be able to say, wow, that sounds a lot like me. Because we have the Spirit of God within us, we probably maybe could say, far worse am I. I have the Spirit of God in me. That work was yet to happen on the day of Pentecost, where Dale took us today in scriptures, that beautiful work of the divine impartation of God housing himself in our heart, empowering us to do incredible things, and yet we find ourselves still wanting to know, Lord, how do I escape the treachery of even my inconsistencies? What is it, Lord, that provokes me to want the pinnacle of my faith expressed in the belief, the exercise of talents and gifts, and to really make a difference in the lives of those who are knitted with me or to those who don't even know me? Why is it that I have trouble even in my consistency in that way? Is it my personality? Is it my cowardice? What is it? Because actually any of those things would be of no account if we are indeed counting on the Spirit of God. And so one of the things right now that as we're led into this, we see a formality of the Lord in summing up what will be his week. And when I did say it would mount with tremendous tensions from the priesthood, that he basically was to be personified within the temple and all of the things that were a part of Judaism, he is the manifestation of everything that it pointed to. God, Emmanuel, with men, in particular with this nation, as a man goes, so goes a nation. Therefore, the Son of Man, as the Son of Man goes, so goes a nation. What happened? He was not ashamed to be one identified as the Son of Man. He was not at all ashamed to be identified as the Son of David. He was in no way apologetic for identifying himself as the Son of God. What is it then? that in those things of great confidence would be his challenge then in this week. Well, it's, it's the dynamics of knowing that that cross, he would not be spared of any pain. The wrath of God, his Father, would be poured out upon him, that thereby in doing so, the appeasement of what perfect righteousness requires in adjudication would no longer be incumbent upon us because God would take the penalty of sin upon himself and the ravaging of what would be required, which is the punishment of it, and ultimately the death that is required in it. And he took that all upon himself. He wasn't looking for aspirins. He wasn't looking for any kind of sedation, even though we will see in scriptures or recall that was offered to him, a mixture of myrrh and vinegar, a gall, that was intended to alleviate the pain that one being punished and executed on a cross would be given a benefit of. 
it was refused. So yeah, a lot of tension. As a man goes, so goes a nation. Jesus went to the cross. What happened to the nation? They accused him at the cross. His nation. Jesus satisfied in that movement towards his execution what was required by God. And he, as God, would satisfy it. But what happened to the nation that both approved it and ultimately accomplished it? What happened to Rome? They were ultimately in charge on the civil side of being able to punish disobedience. They did. Finding him not guilty, they fell into the pain of persuasion. If we don't give these guys what they want, then we're going to have an insurrection like we cannot subdue. Caesar hears about this, we all lose our pensions. Don't know if that was the talk. But it ultimately was the tension. And that Jesus, in facing off with this, rejection, objection, subjection, would be one who resolutely, the scriptures tell us, set his chin like flint towards Jerusalem, willing that even in that subjection and humility, he did not esteem himself less than God, but rather in the full weight of being God and to accomplish this, it would be done. As a man goes, so goes a nation. Where does that bring us? Well, here's where we're at. The triumphal entry has taken place. That can be recorded right at the first verse in chapter 11, but it's not where we're going to camp. I'm saying it's the satisfaction of what Daniel prophesied. Everything that in the manuscripts, the testaments from the prophets, all the way back to Moses, anything pertinent to the Jewish faith, having the precision of awareness as to when God's visitation would take place irrefutably at their fingertips. Daniel, Jesus would refer to Isaiah, wonderful, beautiful, powerful references there. Micah as well, Zechariah, everything to an exacting, precise utterance via the voice of the prophets gave clear evidence that they should not have been blindsided, they should have had their eyes opened and welcomed Messiah. So what happens after the triumphal entry? Here's what happens here. The declaration of the people and their innocence and yet definitely a work of the Spirit declaring Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest and Jesus, it says, went into Jerusalem and into the temple. So when he had looked around at all things as the hour was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. He's making an inspection of the very place that was to have known the day of his visitation. He goes in to observe the transactions that are taking place. And in those transactions... Is it about God or is it about the things of men? 
As a man goes, so goes a nation. A spiritual high point, a place that was to attract the multitudes of all nations that could see the spiritual beauty of that place and know that this faith was a grand faith. Unlike any of the other nations, it was the one true faith, honoring the one true God. And so he goes in to see how things are going. The presumption is that what he sees in there is not what pleases him. And it moves in this direction that on the next morning, having gone to Bethany the night before, he's arising early. And this was addressed yesterday with the guys. Very, I think, appropriate. We were having breakfast, filling our bellies with pretty much everything that tastes really good to men's mouths and a men's breakfast. Jesus humbly sets his eyes and heart on a fruit that hangs from a tree. The tree, as we've talked about before, is a specific tree indigenous to that region and specifically a symbol of the nation Israel. It's a fig tree. Why does God use imagery? Well, we do too. We have a bald eagle that is representative of our nation. And we say, why not Benjamin Franklin's choice, the turkey? I don't know. We chose to eat it, and we chose to let the eagle fly. I've never really wrestled with it. I think turkey actually tastes a lot better than eagle would. The point being is that all nations identify with certain aspects of God's creation in the character traits. And so in this particular episode that Jesus is walking through, he has a breakfast hunger and it's for fruit. He is on mission. He knows exactly where he's going. He knows exactly where he's come from. For three and a half years, he's taught faithfully in the temple. They know him. They even remember him from being a 12-year-old. There are some that would still be old enough and very old to remember when that 12-year-old came and was teaching them, opening their eyes to the scripture, answering questions that should have been asked of them, and they were asking it of him, this 12-year-old. He was an amazing boy. He was an amazing man. He was God. And with his hunger, moving from Bethany now back towards Jerusalem, it says that from afar, he was hungry. He sees this fig tree in verse 13, having leaves. He went to see if perhaps he would find something on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. Seems to be contradictory in terms of what we know about this indigenous tree, that the leaves are actually a telltale sign that there should be on that tree evidence of its season to both bear fruit and give fruit. That's what it seems to suggest to us, that the cue to that tree from anybody seeing it is that the leaves would have a look that would say to those passing by 
and hungered for fruit, taste of me, eat, be nourished, be refreshed. I like figs. I like them dried. I like them raw. In Israel, easier to find them fresh than it is for us here. They tend to be dried, and I like them as well. I like that connection, I think, of the Lord very beautifully when I eat a fig. And I like them better than the fig Newtons, which now come in raspberry flavor too. Jesus, in seeing this from afar, is making the presumption that as he goes to put his hand underneath those leaves that he would have from it, a fruit that he could taste, and it wasn't there. You and I would call an episode in which our hunger is not satisfied both hungry and angry. And we've cleverly joined that and we call it hangry. I'm hangry. <laughs> I don't know who the first person was that used that word on me, but it actually didn't comfort me. It incited me to anger after McDonald's withheld blessings from me. I got caught in a line and then I got caught a burger short because they didn't have what I was after. So even I, presuming that those golden arches would render to me the fruit of what they advertised, I was left disappointed with something else altogether. Cold fries and the cheaper version of the burger that I wanted. I was hangry. Jesus right now, though, moves not emotionally, but actually judicially to say something with regard to the nation that he has come to present himself before. As a man goes, so goes a nation. The men that had been dogging him from the time of the ministry opportunity that he set out when baptized by his cousin John, he was challenged from that day onward. We use the word conspiracy, and it applies to so many things that we say are in play. But in the conspiracy against God, it was upon him from that day how they could take this man out sinisterly and yet without the evidence of participating in essentially a murder, which is what they were planning. That's the provocation of God in his perfect righteousness, in his delightful personality, in the things that miraculously he was accomplishing that they couldn't even touch, though the evidence would suggest in the scriptures they were to be a priesthood that could show the tangibility of God, a connection that every person needed to have with the Lord based on a sacrificial system of both presenting yourself in humility with that which would identify your sin before God, accepted by God in a sacrifice that cost you something. And it moved into a direction in which this house that Jesus had visited and spent really the majority of his tenure with great frequency teaching in, touching people, healing them, now becomes the object of his adjudication. 
He does so by saying this as he passes by, nothing but leaves for it was not the season for figs. Yes, it was according to what it was showing. It was not the season for fruit in Judaism. Yes, it was according to the word, according to the visitation of God to that city, to Bethlehem, the course that Jesus took in being reared in Nazareth. Yes, it was the season for fruit. In response, Jesus said, let no one eat fruit from you ever again. And his disciples heard it. It closes there to tell us what he does do following, not being satisfied with fruit, being hungry. He moves into the place that he had observed the previous night before. Time enough to get back up to the little village of Bethany. And it says that when he came into Jerusalem, Jesus went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. And then he taught simply this, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations but you have made it a den of thieves. And the scribes and the chief priests heard it and sought, notice this, how they might destroy him. The conspiracy now is actually on the planning pages of these men. He's going to be destroyed. That, in fact, is their imagination. For actually God himself is going to employ the Lord and his resources to be able to satisfy what we know has to take place. He dies for the sins of the world. And it says they feared him because all the people were astonished at his teaching. When evening had come, he went out of the city. Sunrise to sunset, he accomplished a statement. As a man goes, so a nation. As these men go, so goes the priesthood. In essence, it's both. A nation can fall by those who lead it, and a nation absolutely will fall by those who refuse to lead it. The church is a priesthood. Every single one of us, a royal priesthood a holy nation, both in the making and eternally seen from the perspective of God, is highly influential, significant. Everything that you know about God presently has been the result of someone in your life that has connected you to the Lord via a verse that has been given to you, a prayer that has been voiced over you. The things that at some point in time led you to such a state of perhaps confusion or disillusion that you were ready to pack it in and somebody said, no, just stand up, move forward in your faith. Don't give up. Hang on. God's faithful. Every single one of us have been touched by the Lord, by a personal ambassador filled with the Spirit, and in a timely manner, showed themselves to us. 
in a time in which we could not stand. And if anything, we were conspiring against God to run from him. Pretty cool that where we sit is a house of prayer. And we don't have to be confused that this is for any other purpose than God's purposes. You're not going to be condemned for drinking a cup of coffee, even if you were charged for a cup of coffee. That's not what going what is going on here. This was corporate defilement of a spiritual institution. They didn't care about pointing people to God. They cared about wares. It was literally turned into, if you would, a commerce building. That's what it was about. Diversification of the priesthood, that will be great. It wasn't great. It was judged. And so when Jesus imposed this curse on that tree, he's making a statement basically about the nation that will have now just slightly less than 30 years of remaining as a nation intact. For the word tells us both in Acts, but also historically the accounts that have been given for Jesus would say it not too many chapters from this 13 actually in which the destruction of the temple would be imposed. The spiritual life of the nation was at focus in the temple. And it was presumed that if that were functioning at its highest, humblest, most sincere expression, then the nation would be strong and able to withstand anything by attack. But what we know is that it didn't remain strong. It became corrupted and those in it. So this is a judgment saying, as the men in that place have gone, so go you as a nation. As the Son of Man has gone, now your choice will be, whom will you follow? Them who lead you now to destruction, or me who leads you in the opportunity for eternity for fellowship. Opportunity for eternity. Hmm, that sounds really awesome. Opportunity for destruction. That doesn't sound really good. But this is what Jesus was saying to his disciples in chapter 13 relative to the curse that now is upon this tree. We were talking yesterday that really to our eye, we can see the demise of a tree. Well, one, if there's a forest fire, it's torched. We see its demise pretty quickly. Lightning bolts, I've never seen one strike a tree, but it can blow it apart. And yet the tree can come out alive. It just changes its look a bit. We can look at the leaves of a tree and we can see that there's something wrong with it based on, wow, it looks gray where there should be leaves. There aren't leaves. Or the leaves that are there are dead and will fall away on the next wind that passes through as it moves down at the tree for whatever cause it may be. We know that within the bark of a tree, there can be beetles and different kinds of spores that can intrude in that protective covering and create the demise of the tree. 
And Jesus would now refer to the demise of this tree at the root level. As he moves from the temple, as obviously we will see another passing by, it's this very tree, in the morning, once again, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. Peter, remembering, said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered away. And what is interesting here is that Jesus gives no explanation on it, actually moves him to what I want to be able to close on for our own encouragement. And what I shared with the brothers yesterday. Life is consequential. We have in our imagination what we want it to play out. We have the best intention of making it to the end, but it would seem that history records it is not that which we can count on. There's only one assurance, and that is our faith and confidence in trusting ourselves to the Lord. With what? Faith and belief. Jesus doesn't take time to explain this. We see the picture. Peter is not a fool. Peter is just inquisitive at this point in time. Very likely he will see this when on a given day, the day of Pentecost, he will have imposed upon him the Spirit of God compelling him to give one of the most powerful sermons ever given in which the lives of 3,000 Jews will be saved as they convert not to the nation of Israel to be a better national group, or to make the priesthood repristinated in doing what they ought to do, they become together something brand new, believers, Christian, Jesus freaks. The 60s saw that. That's what they were noted. All of the dropouts, all of the failures that seemingly came from the greatest generation, the World War II generation, became an anomaly. Who are you? For Pete's sake, Peter, who are you? You came from one of the greatest generations of fighting men and women the world has ever known. Who are you guys? And they couldn't even identify themselves because they began to identify themselves with a world system rather than a God who made the world and a system that spiritually was to replenish their life and to give them eternity that was already in their hearts, but a hope that was generated. The pause here I want to take advantage of because you and I have experienced consequential results from what we might say, the fallout of sin, the choices that we made, somebody else made, and it hurts and it costs and we don't like it and we think about it. We want to go back and change it. 
or make somebody pay for it. Jesus brings in some principles that are very important right now to you and I, because we all have, I'll betcha, some grudge that we're carrying somewhere with someone, something. Because it's hard. It's sorrowful what we have experienced. You've gone through those seasons. I almost seem to mark them with decades. Not to ruminate over them, but I can remember that seemingly in every decade, there was something that was just so punitively hard about what I was required to go through. And sometimes it seems like it had nothing really to do with me, only that I was invited to enter into it. And maybe that I might understand God a bit better. But I know that with what it meant to me, I don't want to repeat it because I don't like it. And that's what basically Jesus setting up Peter to understand this. It's not about looking back on the consequential. What I need you to look forward to, Peter, is your faith that's going to be required of you. Because if what I'm going through in less than a week, you're going to be a part of a grievous disappointment in how you behaved in your hour, your moment to shine. Now, we know that Jesus would imply this in the time of both prayer and counsel. And we know that Jesus will come back to Peter, who will find himself highly discouraged in behavior that was less than what he pledged to the Lord. That's the Gethsemane moment. That's when, if you would, the forces of the world system at that time came to collect Jesus and to judge him. It would have happened whether it was in that garden or another spot. But specifically, it's the attention of Peter right now that is both the focus of Jesus. Peter's focus is on the tree. It shows that he's got a good remembrance. How could the others not have been fascinated? How could the others not have heard the curse that Jesus imposed? Right now, it seems to be that this man was the astute one. And Jesus moves him beyond the focus of look what happened to look what's ahead. What is ahead? Peter, I want you to know right now that what I'm speaking to you about is faith in God. You're going to need it. Oh, by the way, I am. Faith in God. You're going to falter in your faith. Faith in God, Peter, remember that. Consequential, you're going to find yourself looking back on it. What I want you now is to consider the covenantial. I've promised you things, Peter. I have been with all of you, Peter. I am the one who has established a covenantial relationship with this nation whom I came to be the light of the world. And this nation who had the responsibility of magnifying me. Covenantial Peter, providential Peter. The providentiality of God means this. In ways that prove to be practical to you but cannot be denied as miracles, he's gone before you. He's walking beside you. And he's serving as one who follows you. That's the providential hand of God. You want to be stirred? Read about the men of our nation who 247 years ago had the courage to both do what was impossible 
to go against the imperial nation, which in this case was England. We don't fight with them now, but back then we did. And it was truly a nation which by force and military stratagem should have kicked us completely off this continent. The men of our nation at that time were those who, by and large, invested in faith in the belief of a God who could liberate and deliver. George Washington, magnificent, used the word providence generously. But in that, what we know he was saying is, God's protected me before, beside, following. He's been a great God. As a man goes, so goes a nation. George Washington is recognized today in most history books as the father of our nation. What's happened to our nation? Don't have too many fathers anymore. Because they, unlike George and many of those that followed, began to diminish in a believing faith in God. And the fact that in the position that they would occupy, both in executive, in judicial, and in congressional appointments, city governments and states, they would relinquish that grip of God on their life and in their appointments and become simply non-spiritual. Don't want to upset the people. Let the people set their course. As a man goes, so goes a nation. If a nation is going to be governed by a people that actually are to be guided into the truths of God, so goes your nation. 247 years. I don't think it looks really great for us right now. The church, I think it looks really great for us right now. And that's the word that you need to be encouraged by as well. Prophecy is telling us the time is drawing near. Therefore, it's time to both lift up our heads and keep our feet moving. We have plenty of reasons to say, I want to quit. I want to give up. I'm tired. I'm disappointed with such frequency I can't even get my head in the game any longer. The Lord would say, I didn't ask you to get your head in the game. I asked you to get your faith in prayer with belief that what? Notice what he tells Peter to do with regard to this closing statement. For assuredly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he says will be done. He will have whatever he says. Therefore, I say to you, whatever things you ask, when you pray, believe that you receive them and you will have them. This both is an invitation from the Lord to trust him in what others would say is the impossible. And by the way, a mountain sounds pretty impossible to me. Symbolically, it could mean that which is so overwhelming. You couldn't imagine God doing it. And by the way, who would ask for a mountain to be removed anyways? It sounds silly to us, doesn't it? Because we just cut through them now. We drive over them. It's not an issue to us. Back then... That must have been the best illustration that could have been given. Oh, yeah, the mountain. They hiked a lot. I bet you at times they thought, don't want to do the mountain anymore. (laughs) 
But Jesus is making a point right now that says, and what is going to be an horrendous judgment upon this nation in less than 30 years, these things must now be what you employ. And if you are inclined to always look back at the consequential, how in the world can you move forward in the covenantal and the providential? You need to accept the promise that I give you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. That would be coming. They would hear that. They would see Jesus literally from the cross to the grave and out and experience him moving in and out of their lives, continually reassuring them he's with them. In his ascension, he's with them because he promised them the spirit that would enjoin them in the time of the Pentecost. And they proved obedient as we were taken to Acts chapter 1 and 2 records that they were in that upper room. They were in prayer. Lord, we heard you say this. This is what we're asking. This is both corporately and this is personally. The ones who have taken this out of context, we know them. And there are these spiritual organizations that probably much like the temple folk were, they were into corruption. If God says in Psalm 37, for delight thyself in the Lord and he shall give you the desires of your heart, your desires will be compatible ultimately with satisfying what a good father wants you to have. And no good thing will he withhold from you. Well, you don't understand my circumstance. I'm living in the consequential right now. I can't get out of it. It is being withheld from me. Maybe for now it is. But for later, what would you say if for later the Lord says, got it, answered it, not in your timing, but in the conduct of my perfect will, you got what you asked for. Delays there may be, but will God fulfill what is a godly commitment that's honorable in both the expression of faith and belief because he loves you and he's willing to reward you because you didn't look at that dead tree any longer going, come on, what a tragedy. I used to pick fruit off of that tree when I was younger in my faith. It's a dead tree. The nation would experience that tragedy. In the Greek, it would become known as the diaspora. It was literally the, dis the dispensing of the nation of Israel to the four corners of the world. God would miraculously preserve both their heritage and their language. And what we've taught about before is that on May 14th, 1948, he would reassemble them, drawing them back in a global empathy and sympathy related to the 8 million that were killed during World War II. It was a magnificent moment for Truman in a decision that he made that was literally the leverage of having the UN solidify Israel back in their land. Truman made some decisions that I would say on a military level were hard. MacArthur would have been one to have had a hard decision from Truman. 
But the one decision that can't be taken from him was to stand as a confident voice. Israel gets their land back. When the embargo was put in by England to stop supplies coming in to Israel to satisfy those who were being brought back and a remnant that had remained, he politically and by executive fiat said, remove those ships. They're coming in or we're going around you. That was a man that I believe to this day reset a course that this nation had a jump start on. England diminished, the U.S. increased. It has to be attributed to that decision. But then every president following Truman, Eisenhower certainly less, Kennedy probably less, began to negotiate with the world system, saying, you know, a two of course we can divide that up. A shame that we have not considered how to facilitate making everybody happy in the Middle East. The only important happiness is what God says about his word covenantially to a people that have brought us his word. And so in closing right now, perhaps some of you have found yourself in this position. But let me do one final closing. I know it's long but you sit much longer watching the Super Bowl. So just consider this good training for that day. Whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him, so that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespass. But if you do not forgive, Neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. It almost seems to be a punctuation mark on the dynamics of asking God for what you will that's in the heart of his heart. That it is one thing to ask God in faith and with belief, but you've also got to accept incumbent to you the discipline of forgiving any who you haven't forgiven. And that's a tough one because we're the ones that find ourselves innocent, don't we? But the Lord says, uh, there's a trespass. <laughs> what they did, what you did, it's mutual. But you've got to take that step. And when you're standing and praying, if there's anything against anyone and you haven't forgiven them, forgive them. Clear the slate. Free yourself of an ineffectual prayer because you're holding on to something that I'm not able to, by dunamis, work through. The spirit and the flesh, they conflict with one another. Someone has to give. The spirit is a gentle man, a gentle spirit. And his empowerment comes through obedience in the time in which it's so hard to leave that tree so hard to leave the tree. I tasted fruit from that tree. Everything showed me that it was ready. And now I'm just hangry. Jesus understood that. Let's march from this point, boys. Come on. Narration mine. In essence, he didn't let that be a distraction. Far too many things yet to do.